I'm Ben Amos. Join me as we dive deep into how some of the best in business, marketing, content creation, and education wield powerful and effective stories to engage audiences and drive action. Welcome to Engage With Story. I guess I've never felt like a manly man, you know? I'm not exactly a big, burly, blokey guy. I don't watch football, nor drive a hotted up car, or have a tattoo sleeve. The thing is, what does it mean to be manly anyway? Sure, you can automatically think of the cliched man's man, or even some over-the-top idea of manliness such as Old Spice would have us believe. The truth is that masculinity, or what it means to be a man, is just stories. Stories we tell each other in our society and stories we tell ourselves. You see, over the years I've become so much more confident in who I am as a man, through my marriage to my wife and more recently, as a dad to two daughters, I reckon I've got a clearer idea now on what matters to me and this role I play in my life as a man. When I was first introduced to today's guest, I started to consider the role that storytelling plays in creating this idea of man in our society today. And this intrigued me, so I had to get him on the show to talk more. John Broadbent is the author of Man Unplugged, Exploring the Inner Man, and has taken quite a journey personally and professionally to lead him to these passions today. For more than 25 years, John has been researching, exploring, and discovering for himself the steps men can take to instill lasting change, resulting in authentic men, connected relationships, happier families, and stronger communities. My interview with John explores the power of story in shaping our ideas of masculinity today and how the stories we tell ourselves influence the way we live. John shares his thoughts on what's challenging men today and provides insight into how women can work to better understand and support the men and boys in their lives. We explore the changing nature of manliness and how this is being affected by society, current events and shifting priorities. And ultimately, John shares with us how we too can begin exploring our own stories around masculinity and affect change in our own lives. Now, this episode's a bit of a change of pace for Engage With Story, but I know you're going to get a lot out of this chat. We get a bit deep at times, a bit reflective here and there, and explore some issues that really often go unmentioned. So enjoy this chat with John Broadbent from Man Unplugged. Okay, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be here. So I've given you a bit of a, a, a wrap in the, in the introduction there, but I'd love for my listeners to understand a bit more of your story and I guess what led you to where you are today and your interest for helping men understand themselves and become, well, I guess, better men, right? Uh, yeah, that was the plan. I, um, I guess it all started uh, back in the uh, early 90s when my partner at the time decided, my wife at the time decided that she was going to uh, go on some sort of self-empowerment workshop. I was a, a mechanical engineer working in a typical sort of engineering job. So I guess you'd call myself, uh, I call myself a very three-dimensional person. Um, uh, she was learning meditation. She was starting to do some self-exploration. She went away to a weekend and came back uh, quite radically changed in a very short space of time. And I'd heard about this guy 
uh, in Sydney and his, his capabilities. And I found myself, I think it was the June long weekend in 1991, at one of these workshops. And I remember sitting there for the, the whole of the first day and half the second day, wondering <laughs> what the hell was I doing there, listening to all these people talk about their problems because uh, I evidently had a perfect childhood because I didn't remember mine. And um, I think it was after lunch on the, on the Sunday where uh, uh, the guy Stuart spoke to me and uh, within three minutes he had me in tears and I hadn't cried in probably over a decade. Mm. And I went up to him in the break and I said, uh, how did you do that? And he said, uh, he threw down the gauntlet. He said, I know you better than you know yourself. And I went, no one is going to know me better than I know myself. So I spent the next nine years uh, traveling with him um, he used to run workshops all over the world. He was quite an extraordinary individual. And I got to meet uh, shaman in Alaska. I got to meet elders at Uluru. I got to meet Maasai in Kenya. I got to meet sages in the Himalayas and healers in Bali. Um, and needless to say, the work that I saw him do as well, which I benefited simply by being in the audience, um, I saw him do magic with lots of people. But what it did for me was it, it turned my reality principle completely upside down. And I had to therefore unpack all the stories that were rattling around in my head, particularly around lack of self-worth, um, and understand where they'd come from and then make different choices about how I saw myself in the world. So it seemed like you were kind of launched upon your own little quest or or journey to, to discover something, I guess. Um, but that then led you to, you know, realising you had a, a bit of a message to share as well. Um and led you to to the book Man Unplugged. So, can you talk us through that that discovery within yourself and what led you to to that focus? Yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, just after the millennium, after the euphoria of the nineteen ninety nine New Year's Eve, which I remember distinctly well because I was down on Sydney Harbour, um, and you could almost walk from uh, the north side to the south side by hopping on boats. It was just the most amazing sight. And four days later, my friend Stuart passed away suddenly uh, overnight. So I was left. Uh, bereft of a, of, a, of a dear friend, but also someone who guided me through through my life. And um, when he died, I went and read his library, and I'd never read, uh, you know, science fiction and stuff, but I wasn't really a reader. And I raided his library, and I found he had the most extraordinary eclectic collection of books from, you know, psychologists and, 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 and all sorts of stuff. So I started picking up a few of them and started reading. And what transpired over the next probably two or three years as I started to read is I realized the process that I'd been through wasn't actually random, um, that it could be completely explained within modern uh, frameworks. So I think in about 2003, I started a period that was quite a surprise to me of automatic writing. Um, I look back now and realize that was a bit of an apprenticeship. I probably wrote 60 to 80 pieces of stuff around life um, that will become a, a book one day. And when I um, went through that whole process, I realized that I had a book in me. I just didn't know what to do with it. And in, I think it was about 2012, um, I went for just a bit of a healing modality, um, not because I needed anything, but because as a family we'd bought a package <laughs> for uh, four consultations. There was one left at the end. Uh, funny how things work out. And I went for the for the fourth one. Uh, met this woman, uh, attended the healing modality, which wasn't all that um, powerful for me. 
But at the end of it, she spoke to me in a way that no one had ever spoken to me. And it was almost like, you know, someone else came into the room and, and, and basically spoke to me from a place that I'd never heard of before. And I remember driving uh, home and I, again, remember distinctly where I was driving between a suburb called Avalon and Newport. There's a um, Bendy Road and I'm coming down the hill into Newport and feeling very um, open and very expanded, very conscious and very connected with myself. And I remember asking the question in my mind, why am I here? Um, and without uh, further ado, this, this faint voice uh, simply answered, man, dot, 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 unplugged. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, I think I sat with it for about six to eight weeks. And then I was watching, uh, as my eldest son was growing up, I sat down with him one day to watch uh, The Matrix uh, with Keanu Reeves. And in there, obviously, Keanu takes the red pill and uh, and he wakes up. And he's so frustrated by, why can't we just wake everybody up? And Lawrence Fishburne, who plays part of Morpheus, says, um, these people aren't ready uh, to be woken up. They're so inured, so dependent on the system uh, that they'll fight to protect it. And it was in that moment that I realised that through that whole nine-year journey and then reading uh, books about what other people had done that I unwittingly unplugged myself from this collective framework of what men are supposed to be um, and understood what that meant to me as a person, as a man who's tr who transformed from a very shut-down almost sleepwalking state to someone who was now open and passionate and, and, and feeling far more fulfilled than I ever thought I would. Yeah. And um, throughout this conversation today, John, I, I do want to explore with you the power that that story has in in making making the man, I guess, or or perhaps even the stories that we tell ourselves as men. But I just want to address, I guess, the elephant in the room here because, you know, some of the many of the listeners of Engage With Story are in fact women. And, you know, a, a question for you is, you know, what, um, why is it valuable for, for women as well to better understand the, the boys and, and men in their lives? And, and therefore, hopefully, we can keep any women listening to continue to listen to this interview. <laughs> um, women have, a uh, large majority of women have fathers. Uh, so it's important for them to understand what's going on under their father's bonnet, uh, particularly if they're an older father who perhaps doesn't show um, a lot of emotion and hasn't had the opportunities that, that you know, men of my generation, younger generations have to today to sort of find themselves a bit more. Um, they probably have brothers, uh, might have a husband um, or might have a son. And the whole idea, I think, of women wanting to understand men. And in fact, at the beginning of the book, I say, if you're a woman reading this, you know, I really uh, uh, thank you for taking the time to understand the inner world of men because a lot of what goes on inside a man's head unfortunately stays inside a man's head and I think women find us um, quite perplexing that we're often, and I am generalising here but it, it, it is a generalism, uh, that we're often uh, quietly contemplating and processing stuff internally whereas women generally tend to process stuff more externally. And the whole idea of writing the book was to explain to women that just because we're not speaking or because we might seem that we're not even present, there is often a lot going on um, inside. And I particularly explain uh, what I call the man cave. Um, and I break that down into three distinct areas. There's the, the physical man cave, which might be the shed or the garage um, or the den. Uh, that is 
free of of, of, of feminine uh, aspects. So the guy gets to choose his own couch and his own fridge and his own bar and his own uh, his own furnishings. Um, and that's the physical man cave. And then we have what I've learned is two other man caves. The first one is is sort of we retreat a little bit and we go into this place where we are processing stuff, but the doors open and. Uh, we welcome someone to come in and perhaps inquire, you know, how are you, what's going on? You seem to have withdrawn a bit. Is there anything I can help you with? But there's a, a deeper uh, man cave that I've experienced, which is where we go into the back of the man cave and that door's, you know, locked a bit like Fort Knox. Um, it's got skull and crossbones painted on the door and it says, you know, do not knock and do not enter. And in that room, there is no furniture. We, we go in there, we pace, we process and often some of us, I think, get quite stuck in that place. And I think that's one of the things that leads us to a place of depression because when we lock that door for whatever reason, we often find it quite difficult to get back out. And, and sometimes no amount of, of support and encouragement on the outside uh, can get through because we're simply not seeing what's there. And I don't have an answer as to how uh, each of us can do that. I simply know that I found a way to do that for myself. Um, and that was to simply at one stage in my life take stock of where I was. Um, I'd lost everything that society had told me that I needed. I was uh, uh, feeling quite suicidal. Um, but something within me went, you know, th th this stuff you can learn from this is not the end um, and, suge and suggested to me that it was, was an opportunity to actually learn and, and move on from that and come back out of that, you know, recessed man cave and re-engage with life. Yeah, it's... Um I guess, you know, what you're, you're talking about there is the importance of recognising the the different ways, I guess, that we process things. And, you know, I don't think that that's a 100% or, or a an individual thing for men versus women. I think it's just an important thing to recognise that, you know, people process things in different ways, right? And, you know, yes. I think having an understanding and having an openness towards, uh, you know, the, the men in your life, if you are... A, 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 a woman listening to this and uh, is only going to equal better relationships, right? Yes. Again, generally, you know, uh, we process through thinking and then we speak, and women generally process through speaking. And they'll sound they'll sound outwardly or externally, looking for uh, some reflection of what they're trying to sort through um, in, in terms of a problem or trying to solve an issue. Whereas men will we'll do it internally um, and then come out later. And unfortunately, uh, the latter, the way that men do it, the way that we do it manifests often in not necessarily the right outcomes and particularly when men are troubled um, and our mental health suffers and then we, you know, commit suicide or, or we take other people's lives and then take our own. And I, I, I get deeply affected when I hear stories on, on the news of, you know, a man who was at a meeting the day before um, in his local country town. The next day they found his wife and his two children uh, dead and him dead in the dam. And, and I look at that from what I know now and think, you know, what a tragedy. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for, what, what I want to talk about now, which is the idea of the stories that we tell ourselves as as men. Um, and let's let's bring it back to story for a minute. And I'll ask you, you know, what role do you think story has in shaping what it means to be a man today? I think the stories that we tell ourselves and, and that, that rattle around in our head uh, are often quite destructive. Um, 
in men, I'm yet to meet a man who starts the that inward journey and doesn't discover that he's got a hole of self-worth. Um, I went to a um, an event uh, four years ago in Queensland. It was uh, uh, run by a group called Men's Wellbeing, and uh, the event was called Manhood. Uh, about 120 guys turned up for a weekend of, of heart work, and it was my first experience of such an event, and I, it, it, it blew me away. And I remember one of the guys, Andy Roy, he's the author of a book called Raising Teenage Boys and uh, runs rider passage programs, which I'll come to later. And he asked us as a, about 35 men in this workshop said, could you please line up on a continuum with the left-hand side being you had the absolutely most perfect relationship with your dad. And on the right-hand side, you've got no idea who he was, whether he's still alive or not still alive, or we haven't seen him. And all of us were bunched up the right-hand end. All of us didn't really know who our fathers were and didn't really have a good connection with them. And he broke us into smaller groups and he said, so if there was one thing that your father could have said to you when you were growing up as a teenager, what would it have been? And quite remarkably, every single one of us had almost the same words. And all we needed to know was, you're doing okay, I love you. Yeah. And so that that lack of storytelling that goes on in our society today, the time when we used to sit around campfires, the time when as boys we were taken away by the men and we were taken on rites of passage and we learned to hunt, we learned the stories, we learned the narrative of our tribal groups, you know, has been lost today. And since the Industrial Revolution, our, our dads have been, you know, taken away from us and sent off to work, whether it was in the mines or the, or, or, or the factories. And um, one of the things that I see and is mentioned in lots of books um, is what they call the father wound. It is how do we heal that part of ourselves that's missing the father that we that we would have liked that we didn't get. So how can we how can we change the stories? How can we being conscious of of this negative storytelling potentially that we're telling ourselves? How can we use story for for good instead of evil? <laughs> um, I don't think the stories are evil. I think they're they're simply self-deprecating because when we're not given who we are because our parents couldn't give us who we are because their parents didn't give them who they were, it's a generational thing and it, just, it, it literally goes back into eons of time. And I think that if we listen to those stories, if you find yourself in a situation and something's gone a little bit awry, uh, and the voice in your head is is berating you and criticising you and judging you and telling you, you know, you're worthless or you're useless or you're stupid. Um, they're the things that we really have to listen to. And we have to then go and get help. Um, there are, you know, all sorts of modalities out there, uh, different types of therapies where you can address those stories that rattle around in our heads and go, well, actually, am I worthless? Am I useless? Am I stupid? Um and, and really, what is the origin? Why, why do I even think that? Where did that story come from? Where have I picked that up from? Because those stories are not ours. We, we learn them along the way. We pick up the flotsam and jetsam of, of, of stuff um, from the moment we're conceived all through our, our, our in utero, right through the whole birth experience and probably up to about the age of seven when our primary character is formed. And so if we're not getting the, the love and the nurture and the support and the recognition and the acknowledgement and the appreciation for who we are in the world, um, then that storehouse of self-worth simply isn't there. 
And what I learned is by being honest with myself and listening to, to that negative self-talk, um, as painful as it was, it was an opportunity to actually go and find someone who could help me unpack that and find out what was the origin. Mm. I think, um, you know, for everyone listening, they recognise that, you know, the, the society's view of masculinity and what, a, what it means to be man has changed and is changing, is constantly changing. I mean, you know, you've got, um, you know, historically the idea of a manly man, you know, butch and strong and, and uh, you know, not showing emotion and that kind of thing. And But, you know, then you've got, you know, I guess ideas like the sensitive new age guy or the snag that, you know, is popularized um now and then so the idea that you know men becoming more in touch with with their emotions and things like that maybe but you know i think it's also interesting to look at this current you know me too movement uh, that's happening yes. which is basically you know the, that collective female voice or female and male voice really standing up against sexual assault and harassment globally and you know i think Increasingly at the moment, and, and I, I feel this, and you know, I'm interested to hear your views on this as well. But how has that idea of of what it means to be a man changed, or or changing, or affected by you know these these big things happening culturally and societally across the world? I, I think Ben, that if 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 if, a, if as a boy grows up and he's treated with respect, and he's shown respect and he experiences relationships around him that are respect filled and that he understands boundaries uh, and I mean that in in a, in a very strong way um, I, I believe today I see a lot of kids <clears throat> excuse me that are, that are that are brought up in ways where the parents themselves don't have boundaries in terms of how they relate to other people um, and so they can't impart those boundaries on their children and so if you bring a child up in the world um, and let them loose on the world without um, internal boundaries, society imposes those boundaries and does it pretty harshly. And a, a, a boy who's been brought up with a respect, who understands the concept of consent, who um, and, and enthusiastic consent is what I've, I've spoken to my oldest son, who's now 15 and a half, and to see him relate to girls, <clears throat> excuse me, in a, in a very positive and an equal way it just just makes my heart sing um and the me too movement i think is unfortunately a legacy of us not having as men an understanding of of what that level of respect actually means mm. and it's it's changing for for the better and it's you know it has changed as well for the better compared to generations past i feel anyway so i don't I don't feel it's all doom and gloom. I think it's all a you know a very positive thing. You know, absolutely. Yeah, you know, oh, we're I'm, making progress. I mean, you know, you look at you look back a hundred years when kids used to climb chimneys with chimney sweeps and you know mm -hmm. slave labour almost and all that sort of stuff. You know, we are progressing. We are coming a long way. Um, the Me Too campaign, I think, has has shot a lot of people into how prevalent. Uh, sexual abuse and sexual predation is, and timely enough, you know, the report comes out today uh, from the Royal Commission on 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 um, on on sexual abuse in children and, and institutionalised abuse, and thankfully that's going to change the way that this this all happens. The word of caution that I would put with that is that a lot of men, unfortunately, are feeling that they're now being viewed as suspicious beings. 
without necessarily um, so they're being tarred with the one brush, unfortunately, and we have to be very mindful, particularly of boys growing up at the moment who are seeing all the stuff coming out that they don't want to be labelled or tarred with that brush of, 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 of other people's history. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that if anything, you know, these things that we've been talking about here just make these sorts of conversations that we're having today even more important and also for, for women to have these conversations uh, you know, with the men in their lives and whether they be boys or sons or husbands and partners, fathers, all of that sort of stuff, yeah? Yes, and in a, a conference uh, 18 months ago, I think it was, probably two years ago actually, in um, in Brisbane, um, it was a men's health convention. They brought people from all over the world and one of the common themes that came up from that was that um, boys in Western countries in particular, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, United Kingdom, um, Europe, are starting to see themselves as the disposable gender. Um, and the comment made by one of the speakers uh, was that uh, we're, we're creating a generation of um, um, disengaged, uneducated and unweddable men. And you look at that and you go like, wow, because you know, boys are seeing you know, who goes to war, 90-odd uh, percent of people, in 95 percent of people in jail are male, uh, 98% of people killed in war are male, uh, 95% of, 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 of place deaths are male. Um, they're doing the high-risk jobs, you know, mining and construction and all that sort of stuff. And you just look at that from that objective view and you realise why boys are starting to think, well, I'm disengaged at school, there's nothing for me to do. Um, the media is telling me I'm a bad person because I'm male. Uh, because of all this uh, stuff that's going out there in the world, and I am evidently the disposable gender, so I'm not even going to bother. And so women are then um, empowering themselves, which is absolutely needed, but then going out, and my, my goddaughter's a classic, she's 29, and I have a wonderful relationship with her, and we have all talks, all sorts of conversations around relationships, and she's still finding that at 29, the, the, the men that she's dating around her own age are, you know, psychologically 13, 14, 15 years of age, and she's basically dating boys. And the primary underpinning factor for that is that these men in their late 20s, early 30s have not done the rite of passage program, which is what business cultures have known for thousands of years as a process to turn boys into men. And so we have, unfortunately, and I see in a business quite regularly, a lot of people in power positions, uh, which are effectively boys in men's body, then wielding the power of position um, in a very dysfunctional way. Let's explore that idea of rite of passage a bit further as well, because, you know, I think in our, you know, current generations, we consider rites of passage of, you know, for, for boys into men, you know, being, you know, milestones like finishing high school or, you know, even things like schoolies, for example, being seen as a rite of passage or taking, you know, your... your solo overseas holiday like many Australians throw themselves at the UK for example and live in London mm -hmm. for a while and you know they're all I guess you know perceived as rites of passage but in your view are they the right rites of passage to be undertaking or should it be something different or more? Oh they're absolutely not I mean I, I think in one of the, in the video on my website that was was done for the book launch uh, I made the comment that you know the rite of passage for guys is the pub crawl and the pea plates and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't get an opportunity to formally be honoured and to be formally transitioned 
uh, from boys to men. And thankfully, there are quite a few programs now starting to emerge for that process to happen. Uh, there was the, there was a guy called um, Arnold von Genup, I think was his name, he was an anthropologist who studied, you know, quite a lot of Indigenous cultures. And what he found in terms of how boys are transitioned into manhood was quite startling because the process was very similar all over the world, irrespective of whether Aboriginal people in Australia or New Guinea, you know, Africa. Um, and what he found was that there's a process that the boys know that something happens. It's a mystery. And they've seen other boys older than them go through some mysterious process and out of it they might have had a new name or they've been given extra responsibility or they've taken a particular role in the tribe as the storyteller or the hunter or the healer. And so they know there's some mysterious process takes place, but they don't know what it is. So there's a there's an element of excitement and an element of fear and an element of mystery around it. Um, and they go on the process, uh, which is, you know, men transitioning these boys into manhood. They then start to understand what that process is. And then when they come back from the process, they are now given often a new identity. So in, you know, Native American Indian culture, they'd go into a vision quest. So they wouldn't eat for four days. Um, and, and they'd be given the opportunity to understand what is your role in the tribe moving forward? How are you going to contribute to society? So it's a, for me, a transition from what I call me thinking. Um, I'm the centre of the universe. The world owes me a living. Um, almost, you know, a narcissistic view of life. Um, and this transition then changes us into we thinking, how can I contribute? Where do I stand in the community? How can I master my emotions and not be a victim of them? And how can I uh, get support and give back to the society in which I live? I think that by default, that rite of passage tends to happen or be forced upon a lot of, a lot of men when this is, I guess, from my own view and my own opinion here that you know, when they have their first child, for example, um, yes. you know, potentially prior to being being a father, you, uh, and again, this is my own view as well, that, you know, you potentially still consider yourself just a kid, you know, um, mm -hmm. and then you, you know, have fatherhood, you know, come into your life. And all of a sudden, I think that it shifts your way of thinking just, you know, in the way that you've described there, that a, a rite of passage should should take place probably much earlier than than when you know we're typically having having our first children, and you know potentially that leads to a lot of issues. Uh, a lot of people in my own personal circles, uh, friendship circles, um, that's when their marriages struggle when their first child comes along. That's when you know that you have a, a postnatal depression in men. You know the idea of yes, lo yes. losing that connection uh, to to self and you know, adjusting with the idea of not being a narcissistic view of the world, I guess, is is that right? Is that what you feel as well? Yeah, I mean, um, and unfortunately the statistics prove that, that, you know, um, lots of men don't cope well with childbirth because then they're not the centre of their wives or partner's life, the baby, the baby is, and a lot of men struggle with that, and that's why we see lots of situations where the relationship doesn't get back together as a triad, um, and the guys just say, oh, I'm exiting, um, which then we end up compounding the problem because then we end up with underfathered children and particularly underfathered boys, um, and the cycle, you know, rinse, repeat.
Yeah. Look, uh, our, we could talk about this. We could go on talking about this for a very long time, I'm sure, John. But um, you know, conscious of time here as yes. we wrap up, and but I wanna I wanna throw one more question at you, and and really ask you, you know, where if any men listening to this interview, um, you know, just recognise that this is an area that they could do better, um, you know, be a better man. You know, where should where should they start that? process you know how how do you get started in this way uh go and buy a book if you're a reader um one i'd recommend uh to any man who's interested is a book by our own australian uh, stephen biddulph uh the book's called manhood and, and stephen is is on the world stage as one of the leading educationalists in this area he wrote raising boys raising girls uh secret of happy children you know, he's, he's, he's a publisher of probably a dozen books, but Manhood is certainly a book that ex- explains a lot of, of what men can do. Um, my book was slightly different to Stephen's in that I wanted to bring in a bit of a spiritual component as well as to how we can do the inner work. His is more around around the outer work, I guess. Um, and I'd, I'd highly recommend that any man who wants to embark on this journey to dip his toe in the water uh, just to go and find a local men's group. Um, they're not going to bite you. Uh, it will be uncomfortable because you'll be sitting in a room with men who are not talking crap. Um, they're actually having honest, open conversations about what their troubles are. Um, might be issues with their job. It might be issues with their relationship. It might be issues parenting their kids. Uh, might be issues with their self-worth, and that can be confronting. Um, but the rewards of doing that and getting comfortable in that discomfort and actually travelling through life with a more open heart and more emotional intelligence really, really do help you live uh, live a more fulfilled life. Yeah, absolutely. So good advice there. And John, of course, let's not forget your own book, Man Unplugged. Where can people, if they're interested to hear more from you or to, to pick up your book, where can they find that? And, you know, maybe shout out a few different ways they can get hold of that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ben. There's um, available on iTunes and um, Amazon in, in the US markets, um, which obviously you can order as eBooks. I think there's Mobies and Dot Pubs and Kindle and all that sort of stuff was was pushed up there. Uh, but you can also download those on the uh, Man Unplugged uh, website, which is simply manunplugged.com.au. Uh, there's an online store there where you can order either the paperback um, or the um, or the electronic book formats and download them. Excellent. So as always, guys, we'll have all those links to to everything that John's talked about there and all all the different ways of getting hold of his content as well on the show notes page. So head on over to engagevideomarketing.com slash podcast and you'll be able to find the links there. John, thanks for your time today. It's um, certainly opened up, you know, my thinking uh, more uh, even after reading your book. So, um, you know, I really value the conversation we've had here today and hopefully the listeners have too. Thank you, Van. Very, very grateful for the opportunity and the interest because we've got to uh, work on this together. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week. Did you enjoy that chat with John? Let me know your thoughts and what was your takeaway from that interview? Twitter's a good way to reach out. Reach me at engage underscore Ben or shoot me an email, ben at engagevideomarketing.com. And that, in fact, ends the year for the Engage With Story podcast. But don't go anywhere, because although the show will be back as normal from the 16th of January, we do have some very special episodes coming over the next three Tuesdays to take us through Christmas and the new year. 
So be sure to keep engaged with Story on your holiday listening dial, as they say. And with Christmas just under one week away, let me take this time now to say Merry Christmas to you and your family. Look, thanks for listening to the Engage With Story podcast. Whether this was your first episode or your 29th episode, I sincerely do thank you. It's been fun to kickstart the podcast throughout 2017 and I've already got some awesome guests lined up to launch the 2018 series. So, once again, Merry Christmas and a very happy new year. Now, I do have to end the episode as usual with a quote, this time by the inspirational Brené Brown. She says, you either walk inside your story and own it, or you stand outside your story and hustle for your worthiness. I love that. Take care and happy holidays. Happy holidays.